family, it is good to be together this Sunday morning. Um, let me just add my voice to the Lindstrom family and the Patterson family. Uh, after spending a year in Tanzania doing good work, teaching kids and investing in other people uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the glory of God, uh, it really is an honor to have you back here among us. Um, it really is an honor to partner with you in an ongoing way. It's been an honor to partner with you in the past years. It's an honor to partner with you looking forward into the future. And while you're around this summer, um, I want to say this to you, and I want to say this so that the whole congregation hears this, because I know we all agree on this, but we hope that you feel like you are among family every day that you're here, and we hope that you are valued and loved and cared for and edified and built up. Uh, in your time around here. We love you. We love what you're doing. And we want to support you any ways we can, especially uh, especially uh, as you're here among us. So it's an honor to partner with you and an honor to have you here today. Um, boy, and this has been a fun weekend already. I just want to say I just got back from doing a wedding um, for Sean and Jesse. Now Sean and Jesse Louboutin. Uh, two days ago they were Sean Louboutin and Jesse Burns, but now they're Sean and Jesse Louboutin. And so uh, all the fun of a wedding celebration uh, this weekend, which included people from their small group in this church family praying for them during the service, which was really sweet. And so many good things happening. Here we are in the middle of summer, and we've got Fourth of July celebrations coming up in a couple of days, which uh, might mean time with family and time off. Um, and there's been baseball for so many of our families and vacations and so much going on in the summer months. But here we have a few minutes set aside on the Lord's Day to pause in the busyness of life and to listen to God's vision for us, to hear God's vision for our lives, and to hear God's vision for how Christian community, that is to say, for how the church of Jesus Christ ought to shine in all of its distinct brightness in the world that we live in. You know, across the ages, there has often been this tension that Christians have felt in between these two things that Jesus sets out for us in John chapter 17. In John 17, Jesus prays for his, for his followers and he prays for his followers as people who will be in the world but not of the world. And across the ages, Christians have felt this tension. Jesus has intentionally stationed us here in this world on a mission for a purpose to be engaged in the world around us, to love people around us and to represent his kingdom and his heart and his values. We are to be, we are sent on purpose into the world around us, withdrawing away from the world and shutting off all contact from the world is not an option for followers of Jesus Christ who are sent on mission into the world. And yet, at the same time, Christians across the ages have felt this tension because while Jesus intends for us to be in the world on mission, we are not to be of the world. We are not to simply absorb and then reflect all of the values of the cultures around us. We are sent on mission into the world, but we are sent on mission into the world as, as a people who are meant to be different. Not just weird because we have obnoxious habits of behavior or because we have annoying ways of interacting with people or because we're mean. That's actually opposite to many of the directions of the New Testament, but different in the sense that we know we belong to a different kingdom. Different in the sense that we know that even though we are here on purpose and on mission, we have a higher allegiance and a different allegiance, ultimately, than many of our neighbors. And therefore, Christians feel this tension very often between being sent into the world and yet being called to be not of the world. Here in our passage, in the middle of the book of Ephesians, 
We're following through the book of Ephesians and we're paying attention to what it means to be built together. To be built together in Jesus Christ as a church. And here as we get to Ephesians chapter 5, we get some directions for how the church of Jesus Christ in any culture, in any part of the world, in any century is called to live with a certain kind of distinctiveness. How the church of Jesus Christ is called to live with certain, we might call them countercultural values that come to us from Jesus Christ. And I want to point out to you here in this long passage three countercultural Christian values that are here as part of, part of Jesus' vision for us. Part of God's blueprint for our church. Part of the Spirit's guidance for our lives. And so let's pay attention to three countercultural Christian values that are meant to shape the church and are meant to make us distinctive and that are meant to help us to borrow language from Philippians chapter 2. Three countercultural Christian values that are meant to help us shine like stars in the universe. To stand out in all of our Christian brightness through our allegiance with Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Here's a first countercultural Christian value that Ephesians chapter 5 calls us into it's this Christian value of genuine love in the family of God. Now, we talked about this last week. Um, in significant measure, and so I'm going to only talk about it very briefly today, but I don't want to skip it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 begins with this call, Be imitators of God as beloved children. There's family language, right? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And as we noticed last week and as we've seen over and over and over again throughout the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians was written to a church that felt certain kind of cultural tensions. You see, the world in the first century, the world that these Ephesians lived in, was a world that was characterized by hostility and division, often along cultural lines. And so there were people who had come to know Jesus Christ as Lord in this church in Ephesus, and they were from a Jewish background. And there were other people in this church in Ephesus who had come to know Jesus as Lord, but they were from an Ephesian-Asian background. If you would have asked them about their ethnicity, they would have said, we are Ephesians, and we're from the Roman province of Asia. And what happens when you put people from different cultural backgrounds together into one church? Well, one of the things that happens is that some of those old divisions and frictions from the world around us will sometimes show up again in the church as we learn to live together as God's family. And so the Jewish Christians who came from a culture that referred to the Asian believers as Gentiles and who came from a Jewish culture, remember we looked at this earlier, a Jewish culture that believed that Gentiles, Asians, people from the Ephesian culture shouldn't even be allowed near the temple of the Lord. There are Jewish, there are Christians from a Jewish background in this church who have their cultural perspectives about these Asian believers that they've brought with them. And on the other hand, Asian believers would have had well-documented cultural biases against Jewish people, against people who are ethnically Jewish. And here they are together in one church. And what is the call? What is the call of the New Testament to a diverse church, to people of different cultural backgrounds? Be imitators of God. And what has God done? According to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verses 3 and 4 and 5, God has declared all of those who have discovered hope in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has has declared all of them to be His family. 
And in the same way, the Apostle Paul then turns to the church, living in a world of divisions and hostilities, often along cultural lines. And he says, in the church of Jesus Christ, here's my vision for you. There should be genuine love in the family of God. Be imitators of God who declares all of those people that you grew up thinking of as different than you, God declares them to be part of his family. And now you are called to be an imitator of God. And all of those folks that you grew up thinking of as different than you, inasmuch as they have discovered new life in the family of faith, you are called to imitate God. And you are called to look at them and no longer say different, other, You are called to look at them and say, brother, sister, family. In a world of hostility and division, often along cultural lines, we are called to a counter-cultural way of life, which can be described as genuine love in the family of God. That's one of the countercultural Christian values that's named here in this passage. But then in verses 3 through 17, Paul spends a great deal of time speaking to another, another countercultural Christian value. And it's a countercultural Christian value that we might call sexual integrity in the light of Christ. Now, once again, just a little bit of cultural background might help us to understand what what the New Testament was saying, what the book of Ephesians was saying to those who first read this letter. Sometimes, as we think about Christian sexual ethics today, sometimes we have this narrative that goes something like this. People throughout all of history have always had this very narrow view of human sexuality and of what's appropriate for human sexuality. And only in the last little while, here in our corner of the planet, among uh, among Westerners here in North America and in Northern Europe, we have discovered freedom by ignoring those old-fashioned sexual principles. We have discovered freedom by throwing away all of those old-fashioned rules and regulations about sexual expression. And the story in our culture goes like this. For thousands of years, all people everywhere have tended to believe this narrow set of things about human sexuality. But now we have found freedom by encouraging sexual indulgence. Isn't that something like a narrative that we absorb all of the time? The New Testament the New Testament shows us that that narrative is not quite accurate in several ways. For one thing, as we read the pages of the New Testament, we begin to realize that the New Testament itself was written into a world of sexual indulgence. The Roman world, the Roman world that the Ephesians lived in was a world in which sexual indulgence was encouraged. And whether we would think of that today in terms of sexual indulgence that would go uh, with gay or lesbian kinds of sexual indulgence or kinds of sexual indulgence that we would label today as heterosexual Sexual indulgence. These kinds of things were common in the ancient world. They were common in the Roman world that these Ephesian people grew up in. And what does God's word say? How, how do Christians live in a world that encourages sexual indulgence? How do Christians live in a world where people are promised freedom and fulfillment by pursuing their desires, whatever those desires may be. It's interesting that in the first century, Christians didn't say, you know how to find true freedom? The world got it right. Just go and indulge yourself sexually. There's true freedom to be found there. 
No, in the first century, Christians said there's another way to live than the way that the whole world is living with regard to their sexuality. And it's actually better because it comes from God. You see, in a world of sexual indulgence, Christians were and have been and are called to sexual integrity in the light of Christ. Look with me at how Ephesians 5 addresses it. Ephesians 5 begins in verse 3 by saying this very clearly. Sexual immorality and all kinds of impurity or covetousness, I'll come back to that word in a minute, must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you. You see, in the first century, as today, there was the possibility of getting deceived on these issues. Getting deceived by stories from the culture around us. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So apparently, one of the things that we need to understand if we're going to see human sexuality more clearly is we're going to have to understand something about sin and about judgment that is to come. And the New Testament uses some of these very broad categories to describe sin. Immorality. All kinds of impurity. Even covetousness, which is idolatry. Now that word covetousness fits, very, it fits in a very interesting way in this passage. It's clear from verse 3 on, the predominant theme of this passage is sexual immorality. But why then does covetous come to, come to Paul's mind as he's writing about this issue? I think it's because... I think it's because Paul understood that the call to the call to sexual integrity is not only a call to avoid one or two kinds of sin, but it is a call to a radical kind of purity of heart, a radical kind of devotion to the Lord Himself that is radically countercultural. You see, Paul doesn't just say, watch out for adultery. Adultery is one kind of sexual immorality that is named in the Scriptures. It's one kind of sexual immorality that is named in the Ten Commandments that are famous from the Law of Moses. But when you get to the end of the Ten Commandments in the Law of Moses... The, end, the, the Ten Commandments end not just with this one warning about human sexuality, watch out for adultery, but it ends with commands to watch out for covetousness, which includes coveting your neighbor's spouse. And I think Paul understood that living a life of sexual integrity living a life in which even our sexuality is devoted to the Lord, is not just about watching out for one or two ways of getting off of God's plan for our lives. It's not just about watching out for one or two ways to transgress. It's about living a life with our hearts, not given over to longing for what is outside of God's plan for my life. In fact, you know where the Ten Commandments begin? The Ten Commandments, which include right in the middle the command, do not commit adultery, 
And the Ten Commandments, which end with do not covet, including do not covet your neighbor's spouse, they begin with commandments about devotion to the Lord and to the Lord alone, avoiding all kinds of idolatry. And I think this passage, as it warns us against sexual immorality and impurity of all kinds, and even covetousness, which is a form of idolatry, is calling us to a way of living our lives with regard to our sexuality, which is in stark contrast to the world of the first century and in stark contrast to our world today. Because it's a way of living our lives that says, instead of going and indulging your sexual desires, whatever they may be, it calls us to take our sexual desires and devote them to the Lord and His plan, His will, His desires, His intention, His good design for our lives. And as Christians, Ephesians chapter 5 is challenging us to not be deceived on this issue. Following your sexual desires wherever they may lead is not living a life that is devoted to the Lord. In fact, on account of turning away from God's good design for our sex lives, the judgment of God is coming against people. We need to understand something about sin and about judgment if we're going to understand God's design for sexuality. But we not only are called to understand something about sin and judgment in order to live with sexual integrity in a world of sexual indulgence, we also need to understand something about our new identity. You notice where this passage pivots in verse 7. Do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness. By the way, this passage mirrors what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. You know, in 1 Corinthians 6, there's a list of a whole bunch of kinds of immorality, including what we might call heterosexual sins and including what we might call homosexual sins, including things like greed and including things like violence. And in, Ephes- and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's a long list of all kinds of different sins specifically named. And Paul says, don't be deceived. On account, uh, on account of such things, the, the wrath of God is coming, as it says here in Ephesians 5. And he says, don't be deceived in 1 Corinthians 6. Those who continue in that way of life will not participate in the kingdom of God. But then Paul looks around at the church in Corinth. And you know what he says next? He says something surprising. He says, such were some of you. In other words, in American churches, too often we make it sound like, do you know where you would find people who are familiar with sexual temptations? Out there. Do you know where you would find people who are familiar with same-sex sexual attraction and temptations that can go with that? You'd find them out there. Do you know where you'd find people who are familiar with temptations toward greed? You'd find them out there. Do you know where you'd find people who are tempted toward violence? You'd find them out there, but that's not Paul's view. Paul looks around at the church and he says, you know where you'd find people who have been tempted by such things? Such were some of you. And isn't that true? Such were some of us. And in the same way, the same author, Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, making this emphatic point about the distinction between the world's approach to sexual indulgence and a life in the church as a countercultural way of sexual integrity, two separate things in contrast with each other. And Paul, in the same way, says, you know, if we're going to talk about these things as darkness and light, y'all were part of that darkness. Y'all are very familiar with what it's like to be tempted sexually. We were, weren't we? But Paul goes a step further and he doesn't just say, you all are familiar with temptation. He says, you now belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and you are light. You are light in Him. 
And therefore he says these beautiful words at the end of verse 8. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in now you are light in the Lord and therefore walk as children of the light. Walk as those who have been redeemed and set free out of your old slavery to your desires. Walk as those who are part of a new family, who are children of the light. With light, referring in verse 9 to all that is good and right and true. Did you know that God's design for sexual integrity is a design that we would live in alignment with all that is good? And then there's this little quotation in verse 14. It's an amalgam of a few things from the book of Isaiah. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a few different lines from Isaiah lyrically put together. And these lines from Isaiah are lyrically put together to remind us that we are called to live awakened lives. Not just walking around in a sleepy stupor, just living like all of the people around us, but we are called to live awakened lives in the light, in alignment with God's good and right and true design for our human sexuality. We're called to live awakened lives, making the best use of the time, making redeemed use of the time. Living our lives well to the glory, for our good and to the glory of His name. You see, going back 2,000 years, the church has existed in cultures that celebrated sexual indulgence instead of sexual integrity. This is nothing new for the church of Jesus Christ. And for 2,000 years... Although Christians have often stumbled and failed and made mistakes with regard to sex and sexual purity and sexual integrity, for 2,000 years we have been called to find freedom, redemption in Jesus Christ. Which is not only the forgiveness of our past sins, but freedom and liberation to begin taking steps of new life as His light, as children of all that is good and right and true in this life. And so today, as we live in a culture that prizes and values and celebrates sexual indulgence of many varieties, we are called not simply to participate with the world around us, but instead to live as light. To live as counter-cultural people who instead of just following the world's ways of sexual indulgence, we prioritize sexual integrity. All that is good and true and right. Christopher Yuan has written some helpful things about this. And one of his helpful words to us as a church on this topic is to help us understand what the will of the Lord is with regard to our human sexuality. And here's part of what he says. I think it will appear on the screen behind me. Christopher Yuan says, From God's Word we see... That sexual expression is not all bad or dirty. It's God's good gift to a husband and a wife to enjoy within the context of marriage. Any sex outside this is not God's will. Godly marriage and godly singleness are two sides of the same coin. And then he has something A word that is a little bit of a challenge, perhaps, to the way that sometimes we talk about sexual integrity in the church. He says we should stop emphasizing only one without the other. Both 
Godly marriage and godly singleness both are good. Holy sexuality, which he defines as chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage, is God's good standard for everyone. Holy sexuality. I love the way he describes this vision. Holy sexuality, that is to say chastity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage, is God's good standard for all of us. And maybe at first we hear that and we say, isn't that what people say when they're afraid of sex or when they're afraid of gay people or when they haven't discovered freedom to explore their own sexuality? And the answer in Christopher Yuan's case is clearly no. When he began the journey of studying God's word on these topics, he was a gay man who had felt quite free to explore and indulge his sexual desires. But then his life changed as he heard the claims of Jesus Christ. And his life changed as he dug into the teaching of the Scriptures. And his life changed as he found a new vision for his life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And his life found freedom in this vision that the New Testament offers to a world full of sexual indulgence. This vision for holy sexuality. Whether that's Holy sexuality in chastity and singleness or holy sexuality and faithfulness in marriage. Christopher Yuan is one who can testify to having found freedom in God's good design for us. Maybe another example here will help before we move on. Um, I read recently a story of a guy, a story from, uh, written by a guy named Mark. Um, and Mark Uh, did not grow up going to church. And so he's about my age. Like most people in my generation, Mark would say he grew up thinking of sex as kind of a God kind of thing. (laughs) He grew up, like most people in my generation, thinking of sex as the ultimate. And thinking of sexual freedom as the truest and deepest kind of freedom. But then somewhere along the way, he discovered Jesus and he came into church. And at first, when he began attending church and people began to understand his background and his views of sexual freedom, he found that there were church leaders who wanted really quickly to confront those views of uh, of, of sexuality that he grew up with in his cultural background like mine. They were really quick to want to confront that by telling him, no, 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 stay away from that, stay away from that, stay away from that. And so he describes that his first understanding of how Christians viewed sex was a very negative understanding. And so he went at first from having this view of sex as a God-type thing, as an ultimate-type thing, To a view of sex as a bad kind of thing, maybe even a dirty kind of thing. Something he learned from certain leaders in the church that he was participating in. But then as time went on, Mark began to dig into the scriptures themselves. And he began to discover that the Bible's view of sex is neither that it's an ultimate thing, nor that it's a dirty and bad thing but that it is a good gift from God designed to be experienced in a certain context, namely the context of marriage. Here's how Mark would later describe his understanding of sex. I don't think I have this one on the screen for you, but I'll read it for you. Mark says, God created sex so that we would experience pleasure, security, unity, and joy When a man and a woman leave their father and mother for a covenant relationship with their spouse, the two become one in every way. This is God's plan for human joy and flourishing. And anything else falls short. Then Mark goes on to speak to people like me and Mark, people who grew up in a culture that prizes sex and sexual expression in a, in a pronounced kind of way. 
And he says, while the Christian view can feel restrictive, we need to remember that the best things in life require disciplined focus and commitment. The greater yes is usually only possible when we say no to other things. Contrary to modern thinking about freedom, for which restrictions are seen as oppressive, the wisdom of the Bible and of most human experience is that restrictions are often the secret to deeper flourishing and joy. Then he uses this funny example. Fish are restricted to water. But only in the sense that water... Uh, excuse me, fish are restricted to water, but only in water are they free to flourish. If a fish seeks to live outside of those restrictions, it finds itself dying a slow death. And in the same way, when we accept who we are as human beings and live within God's sexual restrictions, we begin to experience life as it was originally designed for us. Because this is the water graciously given for our adventure. The book of Ephesians understands, the New Testament understands, God understands, we live in a world that invites us over and over and over again into sexual indulgence. But God's Word calls us to sexual integrity, sexual holiness, A kind of integrity that is different than the way the world around us seeks to find flourishing in sexuality. But as the Bible calls us to holy sexuality, chastity and singleness, and faithfulness in marriage, as the Bible calls us to this vision for sexual integrity, as it invites us to live as redeemed children of the light... I wonder if we can see this as God's water. God's water graciously given for the adventure of life as people who belong to the family of light. People whose lives shine as something different with the light of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. See, in a world of Hostility and division, Christians are called to genuine love in the family of God. And in a world of sexual indulgence, Christians are called to sexual integrity in the light of Christ. And here's a third kind of countercultural value that we're called to. I'll treat this more briefly than the previous. You don't need to get out lunch sacks. But here's a third kind of countercultural value that we're called to as Christians. There's so much to say here, but for the sake of time, I'll say it a little more briefly. We're also called to spiritual fullness in the Holy Spirit. In the first century world, as in the world today, there were all kinds of hollow spiritualities. Hollow spiritualities that offered practices. Live like this and you'll become a stronger person. Live like this and you'll be happier. Live like this and you'll be able to deal better with your sorrows and your fears. Live like this and you'll find fulfillment. But in the first century world, as in today's world, the more people drink in these hollow spiritualities, the more the hollowness appears for what it truly is. It's hollow. Many of these approaches to spirituality are empty and unsatisfying and unnourishing at the core. Why? Because that thirst that we have for spirituality is not something that can be fulfilled simply by a set of practices. That thirst that we have for spirituality is not something that can be fulfilled by just do X and Y and Z. It's not something that can just be fulfilled by reading books written by any author from any culture or from any philosophical background or with any degree of celebrity. 
That longing for spirituality that we have is something that can only be filled by God Himself. Which is the beauty of what God offers us in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Our God, who all by grace through faith claims us and brings us into His family, our God who gave His Son Jesus Christ as an offering for our sins to set us free from slavery to sin, to set us free from the powers of sin and death, He also graciously offers to us His own Spirit to live within us. I often like to point out that in the book of Ephesians, there are two facts that are assumed to be true about all believers in Jesus Christ. The first fact that is assumed to be true is found in Ephesians chapter 1 and right around verse 13. Is this idea that if you're a Christian, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, then fact number one, you are already sealed. With the work of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, then the Holy Spirit has already stamped your life in such a way that secures your final deliverance. Praise God for that. But there's a second fact that's assumed to be true about Christians as it relates to the Holy Spirit. And that fact is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It's this fact that while believers are already sealed with the Holy Spirit, we can be even more filled with the Holy Spirit. Look with me again at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, it's interesting, after all of this talk about living as different than the sexually indulgent culture around us, that Paul then turns and says, listen, we're avoiding debauchery, right? And maybe there's some kind of connection here because so many people in the ancient world, just like so many people in our world today, there is nothing new under the sun, right? So many people seek fulfillment through getting drunk. But Paul says... I'm inviting you into something. I'm inviting you to live under the influence. But not the influence of spirits. I'm inviting you to live under the influence, but not by getting drunk with wine. I'm inviting you to live under the influence and so find joy and fulfillment but not like the world does around, around you with all of its partying. I'm inviting you not to get drunk with wine, but instead to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That Spirit that has stamped your life, ensuring your final deliverance since the day you first came to faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says to the church, and God is saying to us today, get more filled with that good Spirit. And so find more fullness than the world has ever found by getting plastered at parties. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then your life is already stamped with the Holy Spirit. But if you've believed in Jesus Christ, then you are invited. In fact, you are called. In fact, you are directed to seek to be even more filled up with the Spirit's presence in your life. Now, what would it look like if we get more and more filled up with the Spirit's presence in our lives? Think about this for a minute. It's described for us here in our text, beginning in verse 19. Be filled with the Spirit. What would that look like? Verse 19, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. One of the things that will happen if our lives are filled with the Spirit is that we will have words that will build other people up. 
overflowing from our hearts. Another thing that will happen in verse 19 is that we will be singing and making melody to the Lord with all our hearts. Renewed worship that isn't just a matter of coming and going through the motions, but renewed worship that by the power of God is an overflow of something going on in our hearts. Now my friend Matt Vent, who often leads worship up here, has often said when he's leading worship something that I find very helpful. He invites us to come and join in singing together. And then he reminds us, sometimes we sing from joy and sometimes we sing for joy. And I think there's something true about that, isn't it? The Lord invites us to be filled up with the Spirit. And sometimes that means showing up and singing out of the fullness that we already feel. And other times it means showing up and saying, my emotions aren't all that spectacular right now but I'm going to keep on speaking the truth that is already true in the Lord, whether I feel it or not. And I'm going to hope that as I keep reminding myself of these truths and as I listen to brothers and sisters whose voices are also reminding me of these truths, I'm going to lean forward in anticipation that the Holy Spirit will make these not just songs with my mouth, but songs from my heart. Songs that come from the depths of who I am. And then verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's not only this kind of speaking words that will build others up, and there's not only this kind of singing from the heart, but there's this gratefulness in all of life. In fact, if I can point you back for one moment to something interesting, do you know what the antidote was to sexual indulgence earlier in this chapter? The antidote to sexual indulgence, according to verse 4, was thanksgiving. (laughs) Isn't that fascinating? And whether you're a single person who is called to chastity and singleness, or whether you're a married person who is called to faithfulness in marriage, isn't that interesting that part of Paul's description of what is the opposite of sexual indulgence? It's gratefulness. And sometimes we say, but I don't feel grateful for my situation right now. Where can we go? We go back to the Lord. And we say, would you fill me even more with your spirit? I want to be more under the influence of your spirit so that in every circumstance that I'm in in life, I'm not walking around ungrateful and cranky and feeling like I have unmet needs, but I'm walking around saying, God, thank you. God, thank you. God, thank you. There's this renewed gratefulness and even renewed relationships with other people which is a topic that is raised here in verse 21, which we'll have to come back to in future weeks. But here's the thing. In a world of hollow spiritualities, just do this and then you'll become a stronger person. Just do this and you can find fulfillment. Here's the path to real happiness, our culture says. And yet in a world of hollow spiritualities, God offers us what our souls are truly thirsty for. Now, of course, We don't yet live in heaven in that final experience of the Lord's presence that we still long for. But even now, as we live by faith, this is God's gift to us that creates words that will build others up, that creates worship, not just outwardly, but from the heart, that creates gratefulness from deep within and renewed relationships with other people, even other people in our households. Where does it come from? It comes from God's gift of Himself. Which is not just a one-time stamp. I hope you can live off this for the rest of your life. But it's meant to be an ongoing experience, filled up more and more and more. And as soon as we begin to get weary again, what do we do? We go back to the Lord again and we say, would you keep on filling me with your presence and with your power? In fact, our Lord Jesus himself taught us to think about it like this. Ask and you will receive. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, Jesus says. Maybe I can ask you, when was the last time you asked the Lord 
to fill you afresh with his spirit. That's something that Jesus wants us to do. Just ask God for more of his presence in our lives. Instead of just trying to live off the the resources of our initial conversion with nothing else ever given, as if we could, Jesus' direction is ask. Ask. Ask and it will be given. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here's a blueprint, a vision, a sketch of what a countercultural church might look like. In a world of hostility and division, we are called to genuine love in the family of God. In a world of sexual indulgence, we are called to lives of sexual integrity, however countercultural that may feel, in the light of Jesus Christ. And in a world of hollow spiritualities that promise so much and deliver so little, we are called to spiritual fullness, increasing spiritual fullness, we might even say, in the Holy Spirit, who the Father loves to give to those who ask. And so as we land this message, I want to invite you into this vision. I want to invite you to live in love, to invite you to live in integrity, and to do all of that, not just by your own willpower, not just by X, Y, and Z practices, but fueled by the presence of God, poured into us, and poured into us again, and poured into us again, strengthening us, enlivening us, giving us joy to keep on walking as children of the light, however dark the world may be around us. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the Lord's Supper to come forward.